friends, and welcome to my podcast, Algonquin Defining Moments. This is your host, Gay Clemson, oral history author, storyteller, and lover of all things Algonquin Park. As you know, I've researched and written extensively over the last 20 years about the human history of Algonquin Park, which I'm really having fun sharing with you. But before I begin, I wanted to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming an Algonquin Defining Moments patron. As I'm sure you can imagine, researching and compiling these stories is no easy matter, and very time-consuming, especially since so many great Algonquin Park human history books are now out of print. To do so, just go to my AlgonquinParkHeritage.com website and click on the Be a Patron button. With four levels of support to choose from, there should be something for everyone. But if instead you'd rather just buy a t-shirt or a coffee mug or other merch, click the Gifts and Gears button. You can also go to my show page, www.podbean.com, and click there on the Become a Patron button on the top right corner. Either way, thanks in advance for your continued support. In our last episode, my childhood friend and Canoe Lake neighbor, Holly Gibson Stewart, and I spent a bunch of time sharing reminiscence about her dad, Dan Gibson, award-winning wildlife filmmaker, sound recording artist, inventor of the Dan Gibson Sound Parabola recording device, and in 1994, recipient of the Order of Canada. His groundbreaking role in helping all of us see, hear, and better appreciate wildlife with short educational films and TV shows in the 1960s can't be underestimated. In all, he produced over 150 films and in 1965 won the Golden Gate Award for his film White Throat at the San Francisco Film Festival. Two years later, Land of the Loon became the best TV film of the year in Canada, and in 1975, his first feature-length movie, Wings in the Wilderness, won the Canadian Film Award for Best Sound in a Non-Theatrical Film and another Certificate of Honour for Outstanding Contribution to the Art of Cinematography. My brother Bob was a production assistant on that film, and given that it was one of the first to film close-up Geese Flying, I thought it would be fun to have him join Holly and I and share with you some of his filmmaking adventures, working with Robert Ryan, the film's director and cinematographer, and of course, Dan Gibson himself. Greetings, Bob, and welcome to Algonquin Defining Moments, and thanks so much for joining Holly and I today. It is my pleasure. Good to see you. Bob, I was thinking maybe the best place to start would be for you to share with our listeners how you came to know Dan Gibson professionally, and how you came to work on this film. I first knew Dan Gibson through my dad's motion picture post-production company, Northern Film Labs. Uh, Dan and Stan had met in a photography studio in the 50s, and it was Dan who decided to, to get a lease cottage on Canoe Lake, and he convinced Stan to, to do that as well. The, the motion picture lab that dad ran, Dan would bring in all his footage that he'd be shooting and all the movies that he was making and we'd be doing all the printing, et cetera, et cetera. So by this time, I believe it was the summer of 74 was when the production was. The film came out in 75. I had seen many, many, many Dan Gibson films either his own or the ones done in conjunction with Keg Productions, oh. which was um, uh, Jerry Keedy, the K 
Ralph Ellis, the E, and Dan Gibson, the G, uh, Keg Productions, they were doing uh, mainly distribution, but they would also arrange for productions from numerous uh, wildlife photographers. Uh, and they would distribute it. They'd have TV contracts with CTV or CBC. They would distribute it through to the US. They were a great little company for that kind of product. Mm-hmm. Which was, you know, Canadian wilderness kind of mm-hmm. stuff. And, um, and my rec- my understanding is that it was the first time that those kinds of films had been done and, and, and distributed with any volume in, in across North America. I would think so. I don't I, I, I don't know that for a fact, but I was not aware of any uh, in my association with the motion picture business at the time. So by the time I was working with Dan, I had pretty much seen most of his movies. Mm. So that was fascinating because he has some great ones on just, and he's got some classics that have won all kinds of awards on films or any number of topics. Yeah. So the summer of 74 finds you up at Canoe Lake helping out on uh, Wings in the Wilderness. Can you tell us a little bit about what the main storyline of the film was? The story of Wings in the Wilderness is about Dan Gibson, who comes across two goslings. They bond with him, and he eventually takes them home to his cottage. He soon realizes that he's going to have to teach them how to fly and find a way to get them to fly south for the winter. So Holly, in watching the film again a few weeks ago, it amazed me on so many different levels. Not just the, the, I mean, the basics of the story, but your dad's ability to really think through how could we actually do this, of, of, of A, teaching these goslings how to fly and, and creating a drone and then being able to take photographs of it and then be able to actually get them to fly that whole experience must have been really something for for you and your brothers. Oh, it it was. There are two sets of geese, actually, and both are featured in Wings in the Wilderness. The the second set of geese, the ones we're shooting the photography from above them, and that was groundbreaking film. Yeah. Those geese we got in the spring of 1974 and they were little tiny goslings he got them from bill carrick at the courtright center i think and we had them in our backyard in toronto in in forest hill toronto before we moved them up to the cottage to to let them get big enough they had a, their own little pen and they had us they had their own little swimming pool and in the backyard, which was the the back of an old trailer. <laughs> Dad would just fill up with water so that they would swim. And then my brothers would take them for walks up and down the sidewalk in front of the house. <laughs> <laughs> but once they got big enough to, you know, to take up to the lake and be somewhat independent, they were moved up there and there were 12 of them. Wow. We ended up with eight. Some were caught by predators, 
geese always, they always go onto the water at night. It's safer. Oh. One of my favorite memories of that time was every morning when he fed them. It was very obvious that they had bonded with him. And, you know, Dan had a very loud and uh, boisterous and lovely voice. He would constantly just go down to the dock and go, here geese, here geese. And they would just all come quacking over. And I remember he used to just as for fun, he would put some food in his hand. He'd lie down on the dock on his stomach and put the food down at the water. And they would all come and eat out of his hand. They would also pull on his hair. Hmm. So he just loved that. He would just sit there and they would eat out of his hand and then they would just pull out his hair just for fun. I was a senior counselor at WAP that summer and I can remember being on the swim dock and having the geese come down and visit <laughs> <laughs> and, then, and then poop all over the docks. <laughs> but uh, they, they were very used to people. Well, and Bob, you were telling me that Dan used to get calls from the Peace Store and from cottagers all the time saying, Dan, got to come and get your geese. Remind me, on a film, what does a production assistant do? They would do anything. They would handle equipment, move equipment. There were certain places where we shot, like Popcorn Island. We had to run electrical power cables from the, the closest cottager and float them across the little gap there to Popcorn Island to set up lighting and, and that kind of thing. One of the jobs was to help build things. We built a, a raft for the photography, a raft that was no more than a few inches above the water that you could stand on any corner and it would not tip down. So you could set up people in camera gear and right down low and you'd be down at the the level that the geese would be as they're swimming along. And we had a little motor on that as well. And so we would take that out to wherever we were going to be shooting that day, almost always on Canoe Lake. The very, there's various spots around on Canoe Lake that were part of the locations. Hmm. So there was, there was many things to be doing. So Bob, how did the actual filming of the geese happen? When we would go out filming, and it would be at various times at, at their ages, he would be training them to follow his boat. And so it started as they were young birds who were just starting to get their feathers, going very slowly, and, they would, and he would call them and talk to them and, and let them just follow his boat. This was not part of the movie. It was the part of the production. And, and they were just swimming, right? They weren't flying they were at that just, point. No, 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 no. They were just swimming. As they reached certain ages, it would be time to do some filming. Oh. So when there were young, young, young goslings, there was filming of that kind of thing in Toronto in the spring. Eventually they started to fly, but the whole idea was to get them used to following this boat. So Holly, how did he get them to do that? It was really something watching my dad teaching them to fly first because they were, they were pretty lazy until the middle of August. And then he would just run his boat round in circles and they'd be sitting on his dock 
and he'd go zooming past them and they adored him. He was their, he was Father Goose. They'd go running off the dock and then, you know, eventually they, they took flight and they'd fly behind the boat and he'd just take them. It was like taking a dog for a walk, but he was taking his geese for a fly. Bob, that must have been an amazing thing to both see and film. Yes. And as I'm sure we'll talk about later, one of the major scenes in the movie is near the end is that they fly in a V formation with him at the top of the V in his boat. So this was a, a summer long job to train them and they would eventually become able to fly old enough to fly. And he would take them out and just train them to fly behind him and the boat. Uh, but they would be young geese and they would get they would get tired quite easily and so the geese say would be down by um, the channel out of the south of canoe lake and then that's where i would show up and i would get in his boat and i would putt 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 them back home because they were too exhausted to fly <laughs> So in the opening credits of the film, there's this shot looking north up the river from Benito Lake, and it's of Dan's boat, and way above it is a shadow of what looks like a small airplane. What was that all about? Well, two other key members of the cast were Phil Soden and Ronnie Smith, who built the radio-controlled airplanes. Right, and what, see, what came up for me when I watched the movie again was how much those looked like early drones. Today's wildlife and adventure films are all shot with drones as part of it in, in some form. And If he had a drone, it would have made things so much easier. But these were just radio-controlled airplanes, but with pontoons, so you could do it on the water. And the idea was to be able to come behind him in his boat with the geese in V formation flying and be able to film from behind without scaring them or anything like that. Right. What was it actually like to work with Dan in that environment? Dan was the most joyous person, uh, loud and excited and, you know, just loved what he was doing, loved people. He always called me Bobby. If you rolled up in your boat and you, you could hear him up in the cabin, you know, oh, Bobby, hi, come on up. And you'd always be, oh, there's little Bobby. <laughs> now, I'm presuming there was a script, right, of some kind, or was it really more, let's just film the, ge the geese and we'll put it all together later? Yes, more of the latter. However, there was a storyline, as we talked about in the beginning. So they had all these things that they knew they wanted to cover as part of the storyline. But there wasn't a script as in you could pick up a, a, a book and go through, okay, this is gonna be scene four, uh, you know, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. So it was all done based, it was done like you would make a wildlife motion picture, a wildlife movie. You would take advantage of the, the weather that you had, you would take advantage of the geese um, and what they were like in their ages and, and what you wanted to do. But they obviously in their heads, and this is Bob Ryan, who was the slash director slash uh, cinematographer 
and Dan, they would obviously be constantly talking about what had they filmed that had been completed and what sequences they still need to, to work on. Ah. So as a production assistant, I wasn't really privy to that. It would be just like, you know what, uh, next we're going to go to Popcorn Island, we're going to set up lights and we're going to shoot a night sequence of Dan sitting around the fire right. kind of thing. Right. But it must have been really amazing to actually film those geese when they finally did fly and follow the boat. Spectacular. Spectacular. I remember once I was driving a, we had Dan's boat and we had a camera boat, which is another high speed. It was Bob Ryan's boat and it was a fast boat. And I remember once we were doing some close-ups and Dan was flying down the channel between Canoe Lake and Tea Lake. And we were getting closer and closer and closer. And uh, I was driving and Bob Ryan was running the camera. And I remember at one point ducking my head because a goose was slapping the top of my head with its wings as we were driving along. <laughs> Wow. How cool is that? <laughs> yeah. And, and it, you know, it's, it's amazing enough to see a goose up close where you can look in his eye. But when it's under flight, when it's, when it's flying, and they're flying maybe three, four feet off the water, because they're only following the boat. Right. Just spectacular. Just spectacular. <laughs> and not afraid of people, right? In that no, sense. no, no, this was all normal to them, yeah. which is part of their upbringing, you know. Right. right. Well, and that's what makes the story so cool is because, you know, because there's a part of you that kind of goes, oh, wow, this is, you know, you know, human intervention in the growth of a, gee a goose. But but what's so cool about the story is when in the end they get their freedom and they disappear and he thinks he's lost them forever and then they show up again. And so it's, it really ties it all together. But there would be at, at many times, like they knew they needed to have a sequence of the geese coming back to see Dan. And so we would, you know, near the end of a day, we would have the cameraman, Bob Bryan, you know, go back to Dan's dock, set up and be ready. And then we, if the geese were up to it, we would get them to, to fly again uh, in V formation. And then Dan would drop out with the boat and allow them to fly back to the dock because they knew it was dinner time. And Bob would be trying to record that. And we would do that as many times as we could, knowing that that was going to be in the final sequence. So, you know, you would, you would do it to see whether you got a good shot of it or not. Right, right. So tell me about these planes, you know, and I know, I mean, in the, in the movie, they say they show where one of them crashed and stuff, but that must've been crazy during the time you were doing the filming. Yes, there were two of them. There was the original plane and it was a small one, maybe it had a four foot wingspan. And Phil and Ronnie took off the wheels and put on floats. In the movie, the plane buzzes Dan as he's out canoeing and he's going like, whoa, what is that? And then they have a scene where they're talking and oh yeah, I have this plane. And uh, 
And so they decide to build a bigger one. And so the idea is that they could get some great footage by mounting cameras on this plane. Now, we didn't, it's not like we have today uh, where you have drones and you can feed the, film, the, the footage back to the ground and it's all recorded digitally. What we had to use, well, let me go back. Let me go back. The big plane had a large Bolu 16 millimeter camera, which is a serious professional camera that you could use in any number of applications. We mounted that one on the plane, on the top. It was one of these planes that it floats on the main body of the, of the plane. And there's two floats on each wing uh, and it takes off. The camera was mounted on top and it could be controlled by A, the plane is controlled by someone flying the plane and B, the camera is controlled by someone on the ground who can pan it, tilt it up and down, zoom in and zoom out, start and stop the filming. Now these cameras had a limit of probably about three, three and a half minutes of film in them. Oh, that's not much. No, a hundred foot roll of film. And even less if like what we did many times is shoot high speed so that when you played it back, it would be slow motion of the birds and their wings and the, that would be even less time. So there was a limited amount of footage that you could take before you brought it back down and replace the, the film in the camera. So to continue with our Canoe Lake theme, here's a track for a musical interlude from the Land of the Loon album. It's called Whiskey Jack Creek. And for those unaware, Whiskey Jack Creek is located about halfway up Canoe Lake to the west of Big Wapameo Island, and it's a marvelous place for viewing moose and all kinds of other wildlife, including a loon raft that was put there oh, decades ago.
So things were going well. We were testing it all, but in a practice with the big plane, we were flying it probably, I'm gonna say maybe 1200 feet in the air, right in the bay down where, where the Clemson Cottage was. And for some reason that none, nobody could figure out, it just flipped upside down and then nosedived straight in, into the water. Oh, wow. And this was a huge plane, very expensive, had hardly been used, and it crashed straight in. We lost the camera, we lost the footage, the plane was major damaged. Bob, that must have been really expensive equipment that ended up at the bottom of Canoe Lake. Yeah, I was told later that, that the estimated cost was probably around $10,000. And that's in 1974 dollars. I know they brought divers in from Huntsville to go down and see if they could recover the uh, the camera and the footage with no luck. Hmm. Uh, evidently, it's very deep there and oh. it's very silty. I didn't know that, that they couldn't. It wasn't like lying on the ground. They'd have to dig down in the silt that would just fly up and they couldn't find anything. So that was a bit of a problem in terms of the storyline. So in the end, that plane, the big plane, the orange and white one, crashed. All that we could basically recover was the, the big 10-foot wingspan. In the end, they decided to cut things apart, take some of the wing and the engines, add some floats and a camera hanging underneath, and use that to fly. The only thing they could use as a camera was what was at the time old skydiving cameras. Oh. In the 50s and 60s, people who skydived would have these little cameras that would be mounted on either side of their helmets and they would only run like 50 feet of film so a minute, minute and a half, maybe. And they would use them when they jumped out of an airplane just to record what was going on. Well, we got our hands on one or more of those. And that was what we would use to mount under the plane. Its only option was to turn on and off. Mm. That's all they could do. So you couldn't see. You didn't have a feed to come back to the ground so you could see what you're looking at. But we could get it up in the air and we could follow geese and we could, when they decided it was the right time, fire this off, shoot the 50 feet. And of course, back in those days, film had to be processed and printed and then you could look at it. Well, the processing and printing would have been done in Toronto. So it's not like you could take one shot one day and then send it down you know you collect up all your footage send it down every week and maybe a week later it would come back and we would have sessions in dan's cottage screening what had been shot already and they'd be going yeah that's usable no that's not we probably need to refilm that sequence so that was fascinating but in the end they decided they, they determined that the footage they were getting out of this made up airplane 
with a with a little helmet cam on it wasn't sufficient. So they had to come up with another alternative. And as odd as it sounds, what we did was we took Bob's boat and we put a ladder on it, a 10 foot ladder, and we built a chair, a chair that would swivel and a seat belt. What? And Bob would sit up on top of this chair. So he would be up high. The problem is that the, the weight distribution was totally off. And so in order to turn, I had to stand on the gunnels of the boat and lean out while holding on to the ladder so that the whole thing didn't fall off because Bob was on top and it was so heavy. Oh my goodness. And the boat starts to turn left, it would have just fallen right over. So I had to counterbalance it like you might see on a, on, uh, a sailboat. You know? And so that was our, our camera boat to finish off all the sequences we needed to get up behind the geese to be able to shoot in slow motion down onto their backs as they, as they flew behind Dan's boat. And that was both hairy and fascinating. Yeah, wow. Ollie, I'm curious, what's your family memories of that whole scene? Yeah, it was really cool. Dan, my brother Dan and I were talking the other day and uh, I said, do you remember how they got that footage? Bob Ryan, the cinematographer, perched up on top of the stepladder whizzing around the lake at full speed and the geese following and him filming them from above them because they would fly right right at uh, gunnel level of the boat and they made the boat part of the v formation <laughs> yeah it was I mean, dad dad was their leader yeah yeah so they, yeah it was really cool Bob Ryan must have been terrified at the top of that. Uh, I don't think he was terrified. I think he thought, hey, if this is what we got to do to get the shot, let, we're going to do that. Wow. And, <laughs> you know, when you're in a production, you, you do what you got to do. Yeah. Uh, he was so great. And to come up with that idea and then be able to do it was just amazing. Yeah, that's really neat. So any other recollections that jump out at you as being really fond memories of that whole experience? Yes, just being around geese. Even though as a production manager, my job would be every morning to get the hose and spray down the docks of all the geese poop. What was amazing to me, as I think back on it, was the dozen or so geese they would always be together. Hmm. Sometimes we'd get up in the morning, we'd go over and get set up and it'd be like, uh, where are the geese? Oh, I don't know. And then some cottager would phone and say, uh, I've got a bunch of geese down here on my dock down by uh, the portage store. And so you'd have to go back and bring them back, which meant driving very slowly and calling them and they'd swim back. Uh, you certainly didn't want to wear them out by having them fly back. 
so those are those are fun days. Those are really great days. I learned a lot. I was just in my early days of getting into filmmaking and cinematography. I was really glad for the opportunity. Mm-hmm. I know one night we drove up the highway to one of the ponds on Highway 60 further east of the Canoe Lake area. We were shooting the beavers. Dan knew where everything was. If you wanted to see moose, he'd know where to go. If you wanted to see beavers, he knew which which beaver huts were active, um, where they were, and what were good ones for being close enough to, to film. He knew everything. And we had gone out one evening just to to get some beavers before they, you know, in the evening as they came back to their house. And uh, it was just, I don't know, some shots we wanted to get. So we all went. But I do remember that on the way back, as we crested a hill, we got radio reception, which you didn't always get in a concrete park. And so we all pulled off, or we, the car pulled off to the side because Dan and, and Bob wanted to listen to a particular radio broadcast. I thought that was very odd. Me being, I don't know what, 17, maybe, I don't know. It turns out that that was the night, August the 8th, 1974, that Richard Nixon resigned. Oh, really? And they pulled over because they had some radio reception. It was right at dusk or night. And they listened to, and uh, I didn't know much about A, politics, and B, American politics. But that was Richard Nixon's uh, resignation speech. (laughs) How interesting. One of the things that's really fun about seeing the movie is recognizing certain locations on Canoe Lake where you were doing the actual filming. Yes, we filmed in Whiskey Jack Creek, uh, which is on the west side of Canoe Lake, just past Wapameo Island. We also filmed up on Potter Creek in the north part of Canoe Lake. The paddling scenes were filmed primarily on Smoke Creek, particularly if there was any fog on the water. In Smoke Creek, there's a lot of of stumps and deadheads and logs, and it makes for a very pleasant place to paddle. So Bob, one of the things that's been really bugging me is where was the poaching scene shot? Oh, that. The poaching scene was shot on a small point of land on the west side, uh, directly across from the shoal at Buffalo Point. The idea was that there was a little bit of a, a chase across this land. There was a fight in the water, and Dan got hit with a paddle. And I do remember bulking up his jacket with life preservers so that when John Ridpath hit him with the paddle, <laughs> it wouldn't hurt him. <laughs> and these were all shot what they called day for night, which means they're shot in the daytime, but we use ND filters to cut down on the sunlight so that it looks like night. Oh, okay. And of course, back in those days, you had to do it and then get the film back to see were your calculations correct. 
And of oh. course they were, it was wonderful. And I thought, that's amazing. I never knew this is how you would do that. I assumed you would shoot it. Shoot it now. Yeah. You know, very close <laughs> to dark, but no, they would do it purposely. And that meant getting in the water, standing in the water and up to your chest <laughs> and not dropping your camera and your gear. And then they would uh, film that sequence. That was a fun sequence. Yeah. And the, the popcorn island that was lit and wow. a big fire. And he was sitting by the fire and he would like that kind of thing. These are all fantastic things that I, I learned about. Yeah, how you do a wildlife film, you know? It's not like shooting in a studio, especially when you have live geese that get tired and don't want to do anymore. And directing a person is bad enough. Try talking to a goose. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> oh, I want you to swim this way. <laughs> That's right. And of course, in the end, Lauren Green did the narration. Right. I wasn't aware that that was going to happen at the mm. time. So when did you finally see the finished film in 1975? The premiere was at the Manulife Center in Toronto. But we got invited to a special screening at the Ontario Science Center for all the people involved with the film and their guests. It was wonderful to see it on the big mm -hmm. screen. Just the natural photography parts of it Yeah, was wonderful. Yeah, I mean, I just love the fog sequences too, where you're paddling through the mist and I mean, all of that. If one is a, an Algonquin Park lover, just seeing that and realizing that this was one of the first times that that stuff was being filmed in that way. I mean, now it's old hat, but and now you, you know, you everyone pick, has all kinds of pictures, but in those days, right. that was really, really different to be able to see the mist coming off the water or the sound of the paddle going through the water and all of that stuff that was. Of course, that's Dan's expertise is he's known for the audio recordings of nature, right. uh, whether it's a, a bird or a, an animal or the sound of a paddle going through the water. We had um, walkie talkies, long range walkie talkies. One of the things we would do is get up at dawn every day and go out and look. If there was mist on the lake, then the call would go out. We need to get out here, get Dan in a canoe, we need to film paddling. And they would have chosen locations that they thought might be good places to do that. If the weather wasn't good, then hey, go back to bed. Yeah, neat, neat, neat. So Holly, how did the story end for the real geese? Did they actually fly off into the sunset from Canoe Lake? <laughs> they, uh, they would not leave Canoe Lake in the fall. They wouldn't fly south. And at one point, my dad got a very curt letter from the, I don't know whether it was Lands and Forests or the Ministry of Natural Resources, but anyway, it was on letterhead saying, you must come and remove these quote unquote exotic <laughs> fowl <laughs> from Algonquin Park. They are not indigenous. Dad at that time had a great big um, Chevrolet Suburban and my brother and I went up with him to catch the geese. 
we caught them. I was a teacher's assistant at the Boyne River Science School at the time. And we, we took them there because dad was good friends with Chuck Hopkins, the principal there. We took them back and let them out and they immediately flew away, right away. Dad was so upset. He said, get in the car. So we get in the car and off we go down the country roads with him hanging out the door of the window and shouting, come on geese, come on boys, come on. Look, look, look. <laughs> and we're so used to this, you know, I mean, this is, this is our life. And then all of a sudden this red flashing light behind us and there's an OPP officer pulls up, comes out, walks up to the window. What do you think you're doing? <laughs> and dad said, they're my geese. <laughs> and they landed right in the farmer's field beside the car. They're my geese. So uh, fortunately I had kept the letter from, from the ministry and, and we showed it to the police and they let us load the geese back up in the truck. And off we went back to the Boyne River School, let them go again, they took off again and we just let them go. But eventually dad figured that they'd probably gone down near Orangeville because we were near there to the big marsh there. And he went down and he found them. Mm. They were all banded, mm -hmm. but he went down and he found them and they, they knew him. They came up and they, they pecked his head and, you know, gluck glucked around him. And <laughs> all was good. He was happy. He was happy. They were happy. Right. Well, thank you so much, Holly and Bob. This has been fabulously interesting and entertaining. I have one more story I need to tell you because somebody in your audience will have seen this movie. And if you see the sequence where the geese are disrupting life on the lake, there's a sequence where there's a water skier who is skiing along normally and the geese interrupt his skiing and of course he wipes out and crashes in the water. That was me. Oh, really? Yes. Oh, I'll have to go and look at it again. <laughs> so when you look at it again, that guy who crashes in the water with who's skiing, that's me. That's you. Okay, very good. <laughs> Your first and only screen <laughs> debut. I was so disappointed that I didn't get an, an acting credit. <laughs> Oh, that's funny. <laughs> so it's a wonderful movie. I wish it was available that people could see mm -hmm. because it's so understated. It's not a big blockbuster movie. It just, if you love nature, if you love Algonquin Park, if you love anything, that movie just sums it all up. Yeah. One final Wings in the Wilderness story that was just posted recently on Facebook by Brian Westerhouse, which is an amazing coincidence. He told that he was heading out on his first solo canoe trip in 1974 when he was about 20 years old. And as he wrote, 
I didn't keep a journal or write anything down, but the thing I remember most about paddling up Canoe Lake that day was a guy riding in a motorboat, but he was sitting on top of a stepladder, positioned sideways in the boat while another person was driving. The boat with the ladder seemed to be chasing another motorboat that was being followed by a remote control model airplane, and there were a couple of geese flying behind it. The high-pitched sound of the model plane was what caught my attention to what was going on. That sound seemed to carry across the water clearer than the two outboards. The boat circled round the lake a few times before I got to Gilmore Island, but they never got close enough to me that I could get a picture of them. So your final thoughts, Bob, on Dan and his filmmaking vision. Yeah, the one thing that I remember is the brilliance of Dan Gibson and Bob Ryan and their ideas of bringing this simple story to film. It could have been a small little half hour nature documentary, but no, they had an idea to turn it into a real personal story. And I thought they were dead on and they did a great job and um, was very glad to be part of it. Dan was always so understated. You know, he didn't want to bring a lot of, you know, he, I mean, for me, he was always a man bigger than life, but, but he also didn't want to, he, you know, he wasn't attention getting in that sense. No, no, not at all. I was always in awe of a storytelling, of his loud, boisterous voice, of, you know, all of those things that contributed to making the man that was just such a memorable experience hanging out with him, whatever it was. His white cap, his hat. I think it was a Tilly, but I'm not sure. Mm -hmm. Dan was a wonderful man. I think what worked for Keg Productions was both Jerry Keedy and Ralph Ellis were so good at the distribution, sales, promotion, all that side of the, of the company. Dan was the content provider. Mm -hmm. It wasn't all him. He, they had many photographers and filmmakers who contributed, but Dan was happiest shooting the wildlife in the, I remember once mom getting a call, if you want to see a moose, come now. And of course, mom hopped in the boat with the three of us. And we went there and we climbed up behind their cottage, up probably, it was a, probably a hydro line or something like that, because we were clearing. And there was a big bull moose with his antlers I was maybe 200 yards away and I was scared, you know what? And Dan was like 50 feet away filming. That's Dan Gibson. Yeah, 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 that's all true. But there was Dan out there with his camera he was, he was, uh, that's his element. Yeah. One other great Dan story. 
and a related photograph was posted by Jason Putman in 2018 about an adventure he had meeting Dan that had a powerful effect on his life. As he recounted, On an August night in 1991, a trio of excited teenage boys were hiking through the dark, heading back to Erewhon Road. We had spent the evening howling back and forth with a wolf pack that had had a den on the east shore of West Rose Lake. As we approached the bend in the railway bed at Wolf Howl Pond, we were a bit shocked to encounter a lone figure sitting in the darkness on a stand-up seat with a parabolic microphone. Having grown up with his wilderness tapes, we were thrilled to instantly recognize Dan Gibson. There he was, at 69 years old, having hiked solo down an old rail line in the dark to howl and record wolves. He didn't get any recordings that night, but told us he was working on a special release that was going to have an Algonquin theme. Sure enough, Algonquin Suite was released the very next year. My love of birds, especially my appreciation for learning the songs and sounds of each species, were about as serendipitous as you could get for a kid like me. At one point, he burst out laughing at us, calling him a celebrity, saying, Oh, I'm far from a celebrity. He went on to talk to us about Omer Stringer and the Northern Lights. When we parted ways, he stayed behind, sitting alone in the dark, intent on still capturing sounds. Although I only met him that one time, Dan was one of the formative driving forces that set me on a lifetime path of appreciating the natural world. To Dan's family, know that to this day, his influence lives on in memories and places that you would never expect. Here's a track called White Throat from the Land of the Loon that just features the sounds of birds.
On that note, Holly, Bob, thank you so much for this time. It was such a joy sharing all of these fun stories about Holly's dad. And uh, next time, we're going to get back to our wolf research, uh, this time with some fabulous research that happened in the late 80s and most of the 90s. So stay tuned to the next episode.